Well, we are on the home stretch of Zechariah. While you're turning in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12, I just want to remind you, of course, that this is one of the 12 minor prophets. We call them minor prophets, but they have mega messages. Uh, they're not minor because they are of lesser importance. They are minor because they're smaller than the big prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel in terms of quantity of, of, of written material. But they are uh, prophecies, nevertheless, with mega messages. And I'm sure you will agree with me today uh, as we study Zechariah 12 and a little bit of, into 13 that um, there is a powerful, powerful message for us here today. And um, there's an enduring theme that we have been tracking through the book of Zechariah, and that is that the king is coming. The king is coming. We've been singing about that. We've been singing about the, the great joy that we have in our hearts because of salvation that Christ has made for us. And um, the, the message and the urgency of the prophets is get right with the king. Get right with the king. Get ready. The king is coming. Get right with him. Do not squander the grace ever uh, of, of this moment of being uh, invited to hear this truth. Uh, make sure that you act upon it with decisiveness and resolve. The king is coming. Uh, get ready for him as, as he comes. So the question, of course, that... I put out to you this morning, the, the choir was asking questions from the song they were singing, and we, we continue to put questions out to you. Are you right with God? Are, are you in right, a right place with, with Him? Are you making it your mission to live every day right before God, making certain that you're walking with Him? Uh, this thing called Christianity is not a hobby. It's not something that we sort of cycle through once every seven days and say, oh yeah, I, I forgot, I'm uh, Better remember, I'm a Christian, better go to church on Sunday. This is a, a lifestyle, this is a reality. In fact, uh, be, becoming, uh, being and becoming all you can be in terms of a child of God is the reality around which all other things of life cycle. That's the central focus of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. So Zechariah, the prophet, encourages us this. And, and, and this is a prophecy. It begins as an oracle. And through chapter 12, 13, and 14 now, we have this final prophecy. And the context, of course, the key to the context at least, is these three, this little phrase called, on that day. You'll see it in verse, uh, verse 3. And uh, it's repeated, by the way, 16 times in the three chapters, so you know that it's pretty easy for us to determine what uh, this is all referring to. It's referring to something called on that day. Um, that day, the epic final events of history that, in fact, uh, the Word of God has been building up to. The, the history of the world is not cycling out of control or is not random or is not uh, going to move into oblivion, but in fact, the history of the world is under the set purpose and plan of God. And it is moving toward that direction uh, called on that day. <clears throat> what God will do, this, this particular section of Scripture is quite amazing. What God will do one day for national Israel, He is doing right now in the church. And you have this, this uh, parallel track that this runs on. Um, getting his pe in other words, getting his people ready for the final eternal kingdom. And this reference to on that day is uh, specifically that. In other words, know this, as, as you read this text, uh, we, we know this. Although there are a variety of opinions on the particulars of how things finalize, 
We do know this from the text, that something of a big deal is scheduled for Israel and Jerusalem in particular. We know that from the text. And Zechariah 12 is quite amazing. In fact, it's a, in this very small section of Scripture, it actually tracks a complete survey of history from Genesis 1 right to Revelation 22, and it takes a little, a little pause, a stop at the cross on its way through. It's phenomenal in its coverage, in its scope. And that's what we want to look at today. That's what we want to focus on. Um, uh, you'll notice that there's a, a, in verse 3 it says, On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, against Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem and her people from this particular uh, section will emerge gloriously victorious. Verse 5, because the Lord Almighty is their God. Now, we know that presently and for centuries... There has been plenty of rejection of God from Israel, plenty of defection, uh, plenty of exclusion along the way. Because what we discover in the scriptures, of course, is that presently there is a hardening of the hearts of the Jewish people upon their rejection of Messiah. But the word of God tells us that once the time of the Gentiles is complete, there will be a return or a national display of God's amazing grace as he calls Israel to salvation. Now, maybe you haven't for a long time reviewed your New Testament scriptures with respect to this um, reality and the history of the final, but in Romans chapter 11, I invite you to turn there. It's a long chapter, but I think it bears value for us to, to orientate ourselves to the New Testament teaching on this very reality of the, God's purposes for Israel. In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, a Jew himself, writes this. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew, which means lovingly to act on behalf of. Don't you know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left And they're trying to kill me. The rejection of his own people, the people of Israel, against Elijah himself. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, in other words, the time of Paul now, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear, to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. 
May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now listen. If some of the branches have been broken off, and that means Israel, and you, though a wild olive shoot, that's us, the Gentiles, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, that's Christ, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they did not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted. If they do not persist in unbelief, notice this, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. That's the church. And so all Israel be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Now, the, the Messiah had already come when Paul had written this. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the second coming of Christ. And this, and Jacob is Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies presently on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Thank the living God for that. Otherwise, none of us would be here. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order, in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Paul's commentary 
on the future of Israel. Zechariah, here in this prophecy, is making a statement that um, on that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, and that has never happened yet, when all the nations are gathered against her. Now, we are seeing this, in, I mean, this isn't a stretch. Is this a stretch for any of us to, to see this happening or transpiring? I mean, we are, if any of you are watching the, the latest United Nations uh, event that took place not so long ago, and there was a, a vote pro or against a particular issue in Israel, and ha- over a hundred nations voted against Israel, and there was only about six or seven nations that voted for Israel. Uh, among them was Canada and the United States. But increasingly, there is an erosion in the world and, 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 and an opposition toward Israel. And uh, I would suggest to you that, according to this prophecy, God, God himself is going to clarify the ownership of Jerusalem. And, and uh, he's going to set in, in place a particular, a particular reality here of the eternal kingdom. And so whether you belong to the people grafted in, into the root, i.e. the church, or the original shoots, which is true Israel, in other words, the Israel that will turn to Christ at the end, the rules of engagement for who will be included in the final, eternal, Christ-exalting, Christ-worshipping kingdom of God, the present spiritual expression of that and the future global expression of that remains the same. In other words, how you are included in the, in the kingdom of God, how you are brought into salvation, remains the same for the Jew or the Gentile throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, and on that day. And I, I, I want to show you here how that's portrayed because the world is heading towards this. And uh, it would appear to me that either Canada and the United States will shift their foreign policy toward Israel and be against Israel, or Canada and the United States will disappear as nations by the time this happens. One or the other is going to take place. And I wouldn't be surprised if either of those happened. The world is heading towards this. The prophecy concerning the nations has not been fulfilled. God, the dominating king, is going to bring a final, eternal future where all the nations will actually worship Christ only, and anyone who hasn't or doesn't will never be part of the eternal kingdom of God. This is a 2,500-year-old 25 25 prophecy, and the world against Jerusalem is portrayed here. So the question that we're looking at this morning is who will be saved? And in fact, to, to nuance that statement, I, I guess I'd rather say, who has the right to save? Because that's what the prophet Zechariah jumps out of the gate and shows us here. So if your Bibles are open to Zechariah 12, let's look at it. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. A pretty simple context there, not hard to grasp. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. 
On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. And then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong. Why? Because the Lord Almighty is their God. That's what makes anybody strong. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among, the sheaves, among sheaves. They will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples. But Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than all of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Let's pause there. Let's stop and let's look at this section. So who will be saved? And as I said, in, in nuancing that, I think the prophet here is, is really uh, helping us to understand the question, who has the right to save? And, and so this prophecy jumps out of the gate with this incredible inst- uh, description of the living God himself and, and declares three things about this one who is making this declaration or this prophecy. He is the one who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him. Here's the resume of the one who is declaring this prophecy. By the way, Zechariah is just a, just a, a servant of the living God. He, he's simply bringing forth the word of God. And so when we think about these prophecies and we look at all the things around us and, 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 we're, and we're, we're reading here of international affairs that are yet to take place and we're saying, who says so? Who's declaring this? What credentials does he have? Can he actually bring this to pass? Does he have the power to thwart the nations? And so Zechariah reminds all of us of who the one declaring this truth is. This is the living God who by his word uh, speaks the universe into existence, lays out, the stretches out the heavens, and he's the one who lays the foundations of the earth, and he's the one who forms the spirit in mankind. He's, he's the one who's speaking. And, and as always, it's a critical for us to, to orientate ourselves to the reality and the nature of the power of God, the God we serve. And, and uh, the, the fulfillment of everything that we believe, all the promises that we have, the prophecies that are made, are based on the credentials of the living God. The God who spoke the universe into existence says that those who attack Jerusalem at the end will find themselves against an immovable force, will find themselves destroyed, disarray, and completely obliterated by the living God because God is their God. And this promise, this whole section here, as with all things in the Word of God, is based upon the veracity and the power of the living God and His Word. He declares it Therefore, it will come to pass. Therefore, we have confidence. This is why I stress to you over and over again to have confidence in Creator God, to, to, to foundation your 
faith and your beliefs in who God is and what God has done and how powerful he is, he just speaks the universe into existence and so it is. Any erosion of our confidence in the living God as creator, as the one who declares and things come true, any erosion in that confidence will erode your confidence in his promises for you. It will erode your confidence in your salvation. It will erode your confidence in the promises that God has made to you. Zechariah jumps out of the prophecy and says, I'm not saying this. God is saying this. Take his word for it. I say this, the same thing to you this morning in answer, asking the question, who will be saved? Because God is creator, this is who. Who the Lord determines to save and whoever puts their trust in God's salvation will be invincibly saved. That's who will be saved. And this prophecy prioritizes that. The same God who grants physical life by his word is the same God who writes history by his word. And who writes the future by his word. Is the same God who forms spiritual life in you by his word. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He said the same God who said let light shine. Is the God who, let, who causes light to shine in your hearts. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the basis of that same power of God. And, and just a quick rundown here of, of what is stated, what is promised. Verse 2, Jerusalem will determine the destiny of the nations against her. She will become, it's stated, she will be a cup. And and a cup is always the, sort of your lot in life. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, may this cup pass from me. That cup is sort of the purpose, the plan of God. And and, and so Jerusalem now becomes the cup uh, and and, and forms the destiny of the nations around them. And, uh, and, and will render them as, as if they are drunkards, it says. In verse 3, those who try to move Jerusalem will end up with a hernia. That's kind of what it says there in a, in a new revised version. They will, it says they'll be immovable and they will injure themselves. That's what it says here. And so in verse 4, the war efforts of opposing forces, their horses, symbolic of the, 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 the opposing forces and their warfare and their implements of war will be put into disarray. They'll be consumed. Why? In verse 5, because God is with them. History is all about his glory. Always is. Always will be. He does this not because Israel's special. He saves you not because you're special. Everything he does is for his glory and display his amazing grace, his amazing mercy, and to put his glory on display. And that he has a plan and a purpose historically for Israel at the end is for his glory. That people might look and say, surely God did this. There's no other explanation. When all the nations are arrayed against a little tiny group of people, And they succeed in being victorious over all the nations of the world? There is only one explanation. The glory of God and his power. That's what's portrayed here for us. In verse 6, the leaders will be indomitable. In verse 7, Israel will unify. Verse 8, Israel will be covered by a great shield so that no one can hurt them. Even now they have this iron dome we could have never imagined. We've got all kinds of nations taking pot shots at Israel in case you haven't been paying attention. Missiles firing all the time at Israel. And they have this iron dome. Now it's technologically engineered. 
but its effectiveness is because of God. And God will protect, he will cover them. I mean, who could have ever imagined that a country would be covered by a shield, a whole country covered by a shield? We see this already transpiring, a country covered by a shield. In verse 9, God will set himself against those nations that oppose him to destroy them. God saves those who he decides to save. That's what this text states. Now, we move on, verses 10 and following, but, but how will they be saved? Because this salvation that is presented here is, by the way, not a different salvation. The salvation in the Old Testament, the salvation in the New Testament, the salvation on that day is not a different kind of salvation. The salvation that's presented here uh, from verses 10 and on is the same salvation that you and I enjoy by the grace of God. Uh, And and I want to show you this. This is not a different salvation. Their promised victory is not based on their international or national heritage. It is not. Although God picks Israel out again because his call is irrevocable, his promise But it's based upon righteousness and loyalty to God. And it always has been and it always will be. And let me show you here. In verse 10 and following. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem two things. Look at them. A spirit of grace and a spirit of supplication. We're going to come back to that. Underline that in your Bible. That's critical to the understanding of salvation. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Now, you've heard that phrase before. That brings a reminder to you, doesn't it, of Calvary? They will look upon him when they have pierced. And grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives. The clan of the house of Nathan and their wives. The clan of the house of Levi and their wives. The clan of Shimei and their wives. And all the rest of the clans and their wives. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, his father and mother to whom he was born will say to him, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. He will say, I am not a prophet. I am a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone asks him, what are these wounds on your body? He will answer, the wounds I was given in the house of my friends. We'll stop right there. Um, we, we don't have time to unpack all of this. It's just packed with stuff here. But I want to give you a good overview to answer the question, how will they be saved? And, and the bottom line is simply this. The ones who receive an outpouring of both God's favor, grace, and ability to respond to that favor, supplication, will be saved. Those two realities. Victory is predicated on repentance and cleansing and not apart from it. Now, let's, let's, I really want to unpack this for you. In the end, in the end, as it is now, victory and salvation happen 
simultaneous to transformation. And it is all the work of God by God's Spirit. Note this, it's critically important what salvation looks like. It is always the initiation of God. He initiates His grace or chooses to to place His favor upon you, but also He places upon you the enablement to respond to His favor in repentance, to turn from yourself your sinfulness, and to turn to Christ. It's always the same. It is this package deal that, that he presents here. The, I will pour out the spirit of grace and the spirit of supplication. This is incredibly important for us to understand. So grace is the undeserved favor of God, which is initiated by him for us on our behalf, And he also grants us the ability to embrace or welcome that grace. Otherwise, we couldn't be saved. So that everything from start to finish is a work of God and not a work of us. It is an all from start to finish the grace of God. The supplication is an ability to seek that favor and act upon it in penitence. And that's why he presents here that they will look upon me and they will mourn Uh, Mourn as if one who's lost an only child, in particular an only son. The kind of deep, deep grief that is pictured here upon the recognition of our sinful lives and our disloyalty toward God and our rejection of Christ comes upon us in this act of God's grace toward us and we are deeply, deeply grieved and moved and it moves us in the heart to repent with deep grief and mourning, the same kind of grief as if you've lost a child, an only son. Now, some of you perhaps in here even this morning uh, know what it is to have lost a child, and you understand the nature of this deep grief that is being talked about here. And the picture for us here is that those who truly have come into a life or a salvation relationship with the living Christ, are deeply grieved by their sinfulness and moved of heart to turn to Christ for his cleansing fountain that washes over. They will repent. John picks up in this very uh, text, they will look upon me, the one they have pierced, in John 19, 37, as the disciple of Jesus gazed upon the cross, watching the, the mother of, of Jesus, Mary, at the foot of the cross, deeply grieved and, and, and wounded because of the loss, the death of her son. And it, it occurred to him, wait a second, I've heard of this before, I've heard this picture, I'm looking here, and I'm watching the Son of God pierced. And, 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 and those around whose hearts are wounded and are, are recognizing the, the intenseness of this moment of what, what, what is happening to Christ. Now, now as I've shared with you before, the, the meaning of this text, it, it actually has a, a three-phase picture to it. Um, when Christ was, was uh, on the cross, um, I, I've, I've shared with you before that, that the living God regularly helps us to understand the nature of his heart and how he feels by, by choosing to do things in a human context that we can understand and we can feel and we can appreciate. 
And so God regularly pictures for himself what is historically going to happen by events that he causes to happen before the historical event, uh, such as Isaac, uh, the, the, uh, Abraham and Isaac on the mountain was a picture of, the, of Calvary and what was going to happen at Calvary. And here's what we have here. And, and here's what God wants us to understand. As, as we understand the cross, they, they hadn't got to the cross yet, but as we understand the cross, we, we know our Messiah, the Son of God, was pinned to the cross and he was pierced for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, verse 5. We know this. This is very messianic here. And, and we know in our own hearts, as we've come to a recognition of what put Jesus on the cross, it was our sinfulness, and, and it deeply grabs our hearts to know that we were the ones, we were responsible for what happened to the, the beautiful Son of God. And the living God wants all of us to understand that Jesus on the cross was also an ob, not just, it wasn't just redemption, although that was the, the major package deal, but it was also a picture for all humanity of what all of us have been doing to God since the fall in the Garden of Eden. We have been piercing the living God by our sinfulness. Our sinfulness and rejection of God and our turning to idols is literally turning our backs on God and shouting to heaven, I wish you were dead because I'd rather live my life for myself. And God is saying, do you realize what you have done and what you continue to do by your sinfulness? You pierce me. You slay me. You kill me. And when Jesus was placed on on the cross and they gazed at him pierced because of their sins they were deeply moved of heart and when Jesus Christ speaks to us by his grace to bring us into his kingdom and speaks to us by the grace of of his salvation toward us our response to him that he generates for us on our behalf is to be deeply grieved and moved and to navigate our lives from that day forward to be deeply grieved and moved by our sinfulness, which every time is a piercing of God from our own hearts. And this is a promise to Israel that one day that one you pierced and that one you have been piercing since the fall of Eden is going to appear again and you will gaze upon that one who you have pierced. And you will mourn like a man or a woman mourns for the death of their only son. And that's the only appropriate expression emotionally of people who have really come into a life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. The nature of who is saved are those who repent and mourn for their sins. And the, those, the good news is those who repent of their sins are promised a cleansing fountain, 13 verse 1. A cleansing fountain that swamps your sin and buries your iniquity and your transgressions and makes you white as snow before God, takes away your guilt and your shame and enables you to live a life that rejects sin and turns to the Savior. That's the message of the cross. The repentant receive a cleansing fountain to wash away their sin and their ritual and sexual impurities. 
So vast is the, great of God, the grace of God that genuine repentance brings total forgiveness. You are washed clean. And those who understand that are gripped in their hearts. Tonight we'll gather back around the Lord's table and we will actually celebrate and reenact what Christ has done for us. And we will celebrate the amazing grace that he gave to us and the spirit of supplication that that he enabled us to embrace that favor and to repent of our sins and to go on repenting of our sins when when we commit sins. That's what is granted to us. Mourning and grief, repentance gives way to cleansing. Because of his grace, your cleansing and my cleansing enables us to come here this morning and to lift up our hearts together and to worship him with with thankful and glad hearts. We've been washed by the blood of the lamb. We've been been set free from our grief and our guilt and our shame. We've been rescued and brought into his amazing kingdom. We've been given the strength and power of the Holy Spirit to sin no more. This has been granted to us, and and so we recognize that, and we praise him with exuberance, and we we declare him, uh, we welcome the rule of Christ in our hearts. We gather together each Sunday and praise him, honor him, and thank him, and recommit ourselves to the rule of Jesus in our hearts. And brother or sister or whoever you are out there this morning, if that's not your reality, then I'm telling you you're not a Christian. Because a Christian understands the grace of God, has welcomed the grace of God, has expressed deep remorse for their sinfulness, and celebrates and worships the living Christ with exuberance. You may be saying out here this morning, well, I, I, you know what, I do know I'm a believer. I know I'm a believer, but, but I'm, not, I'm not experiencing what you're talking about there. In fact, for, for a year or several years, I've been struggling and frustrated with what's been going on in my life. I've longed to... to, to to, to desire to read the word of God. I've longed to desire to pray. I, I've longed to, to come into church and have exuberant worship. I look at other people, they seem so joyful and so excited about what God has done in their lives and I long to experience that. I, I, but, but I'm not experiencing that. What's wrong? What's happening? Well, brother or sister, maybe you, you've allowed yourself to, to just succumb to layers of life and sin, and it's just sort of heaped upon you, and, and, and you're trying every year like this, 2019, the start of a new year, resolve. This year, I'm going to read God's Word. I'm going to like to do it. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to love to do it. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to be exuberant, excited about the things of God. I'm going to be excited about my salvation and all of that. I'm going to resolve to do that. I can tell you right now, at the end of this year, you'll be as miserable as you were at the start of this year. Because that's not how it works. Salvation from start to finish, our sanctification, our growth, our love for God, our love for prayer, our love for the family of God, our love for worship, our, our, our love for Bible reading, like everything else about our salvation and our relationship comes from God alone. And brothers and sisters, maybe you just haven't been asking God. Every day you got to get up and ask the Lord to to fill you with the Spirit of God. Ask Him to fill you with the Spirit of God. you got to get up every day and ask Him, Lord, give me, a, give me a desire to read your Word, Lord. Give me a desire to pray. Give me a desire to worship, Lord. Give me the desires of the heart that you want me to have. 
because this is the work of the Spirit in our lives. You can't engender this in the flesh. If you could engender this in the flesh, you didn't need Jesus in the first place. The reason that you needed Jesus Christ in the first place is to grant you the grace of his salvation, for the, you to, him to grant you the spirit of supplication that you would receive his grace and that you would repent of your sin and that you would, you, you would live a life of joy in Christ, turning your back on sinfulness, not being buried under layers of sin, but rather rejoicing with God's people over the victory that Jesus Christ has won for you on the cross of Calvary. That's the message of Zechariah. That's what he promises at the end on that day. This is what I'm going to grant to the people who, who respond to my grace. And, and finally, I just want to wrap this up. It, it says here that it, it will banish uh, idols and, 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 and sexual impurity and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, the powerful work of God leads us to repentance it leads us to receive the cleansing fountain that changes our lives completely. And, it, and the powerful work of God within us will, will enable um, us to turn away from idols, to turn away from false gods. Uh, we don't have the time, but I, I want to point out to you that you need to read Ephesians 5, 3 to 5. It gives a listing there of idolatry. Uh, half the time we ignore the fact that there might be idols in our life. And when you read that text and, the con and, 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 and what idolatry encompasses you realize suddenly, wait a second. Idolatry isn't simply bowing down to some idol that was carved by a man. Idolatry comes in, in, in a variety of ways. It comes in, 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 the, in the, uh, the, the acts of sexual immorality. Idolatry happens when, we're, when there's coarse joking or putting people down or around us. Uh, idolatry happens to us when we have a love of, of material things. Hedonism, materialism. Uh, dominance over one another, pride and greed. In that text, Paul says, this is idolatry. And no idolaters were going to enter the kingdom of God. You take a look at that and you say to yourself, if God doesn't rescue me out of this body of sin, I am doomed. But he promises to banish idols. He, he promises to those he brings into salvation that he will chase false gods away from you. And, and if we allow idols to come into our lives, we allow ourselves to be buried under our sin, we will eventually start to see the world through the eyes of our own sinfulness, and we'll hear the words through the ears of our own sinfulness, and they will tell us that the way we are living is fine. And we stop listening to God. And when we stop listening to God, we seek false answers from dead people. And I mean people who are dead spiritually. And ultimately, the whole issue of prophecy here and prophets saying stuff that Jesus didn't, that, that God didn't say, and, and it's, the, the call here is that he will enable us to turn from deceptive prophesying, from false teaching, telling lies, and using the Lord's name to do it. You need to read, I need to read, I have, Jer Jeremiah 23, 9 to 40. You don't have time to look there this morning, but I'm telling you, read that. It is contemporary. It is contemporary to our age. I'll, this is, I'll wrap it up right now. I'll tell you what the church needs, our, our, our church and all the church of Jesus Christ needs right now. There, there is, um, there is uh, lots of energy being spent on asking God, oh God, we want sensational stuff, we want novel stuff, we need to see some great acts of God. Please Lord, give me, give me uh, gifts of great, great sensational power and great acts and, and, and we, need, we need more signs and wonders. Listen, we don't need more signs and wonders. What we need is more people 
who ask the Lord down on their knees and ask the Lord to forgive them of their sins, to turn from their sinfulness, and give them a spirit of discernment. You know, Jesus himself said, look, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that comes looking for signs and wonders. And that adulterous didn't mean people who were leaving their husband or wife. Adulterous meant people who were leaving God. It meant people who were actually turning their back on God, piercing him all over again, saying, I want to be a mini-God. Give me signs, wonders, give me great powers. I want to be able to display great things. Listen, what we need in our age is a church full of people, and this is my heart for our church. We need a heart, a church full of people who turn from their sin, get down on their knees, deeply grieve their sinfulness as they pierce God, and ask the Lord, oh God, give me a heart of discernment, an ability to to know what is right and what sounds right but isn't right. Because that is the evidence of those who've truly come into a relationship with God. They know the difference between false teaching and true teaching. And so in all of this, as the uh, musical team comes forward, God wants us all to make sure we understand that God's real work chases all of this away. Idolatry, listening to dead voices, listening to things that aren't true, chases all of that away. Puts in our hearts a deep grief and remorse for our sinfulness and then promises to cleanse us with his blood. All of that. Let me ask you this morning, are you able to receive the cleansing grace of God? There's two or three kinds of people out here this morning. Perhaps you've never, ever responded to God's grace and offer of salvation to you. He offers you salvation through Jesus Christ who died on a cross for our sins as a substitute for our sins that by believing in him we might have eternal life. He offers that to us. He offers the grace of that salvation and the enablement to receive that grace and to repent of your sins and turn to God. But there may be others of you here this morning who are really frustrated with your life. You know that you're a child of God, but you don't have any emotional sensitivity toward God at all. You're not hearing from Him. You're, you're frustrated. You're struggling. You have no desire to pray. You have little desire to read God's Word. You drag yourself out to church because you know you better come, but you don't have an exuberant heart. You don't have a joyful heart. You're not grateful about your salvation, and you're wondering, what's wrong with me? Well, what might be wrong with you is that life has a way of just burying us under our sinfulness sometimes, and we, we just allow little bits of sin to come into our life. We don't deal with it. We leave it. Instead of being deeply remorseful, turning to our God for forgiveness, we allow it to build up and, and callous in our lives, and pretty soon we just aren't desiring God. We don't care about His Word. We're not looking forward to prayer. We're not looking forward to being with Him. We're not looking forward to being with God's people. We're just frustrated. And here we are at 2019, you've been saved for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, and you're just frustrated with where you are with the Lord. Well, listen, this is an opportunity. Zachariah's prophecy is for us. On that day, on that day, it's all going to be settled. It's all going to be fixed. But in the meantime, God is readying us for the King who's coming. And so we're going to sing a great old hymn, a little bit of a different tempo. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilt and stain. Uh, you know, I, I just think this place should be a place of uh, getting right with God, getting ready with God this morning. And I'm going to come down here. I'm just going to stand here. Others are going to join me. 
because um, in the first service, there's just a great outpouring of God's work in people's lives. And if God is speaking to you, as you come into 2019, say, I'm just frustrated. I just, I just need something better. Or maybe, you know, maybe you just want to just drive a stake into the ground this year. Say, 2019, Lord, I thank you for your grace. I am grabbing all of it. I am, I am going to keep a short account with you. I am going to make sure that by God's power and God's strength, I, I repent of my sin and enjoy the cleansing flood of God's forgiveness. I don't know what God is saying to you this morning out of this text. But every now and then we just need to drive a stake in and and say something personally and something visually. Lord, I am all in. I am all yours. If that's your heart, then you join me as we sing in this song this morning. We'll just pray as we close this morning. Would you join me and stand with us? Let's praise our great God today. Yeah. 
Father and our most gracious God, our hearts are bare before you. We've gathered here this morning, some of us here at the front, others are where they are, but Lord, all of us want you to know we are grateful for your grace to us in salvation and to enable us to respond to that grace through repentance. And to live a life of repentance, Lord, turning from our sin, that we might not pierce our God over and over again, but might recognize your amazing and great love for us. And so, Lord, as we stand here at the beginning of this year, we ask as a church that you might clean us, purify us. Thank you for the cleansing flood of Christ's blood that washes over us and removes all of our guilty stains and sets us free before you, free to rejoice, free to thank you, free to worship, freedom to love your word, freedom to love God's people, freedom to love prayer and being in your, in your presence, oh God. All a work of God. So Father, we present ourselves to you, a church, that you are growing without, to be without stain or wrinkle. Would you continue, Lord, to grow us? And make us available for every plan you have for us, Lord, in our lives. I pray for those, Lord, who are, who are just challenged and struggling this morning, desiring to get out from the layers of life that have burdened us down, that we might be free, free indeed in Christ, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.